Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. And today we have 10 questions. We have a lot to get through, a lot of great questions and a lot of things we haven't talked about in a while. So let's just jump right in. Now, question number one says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday, or, and you're already testing me, it says, Fijne uh, Donderdang in Dutch. I'm sure I butchered that. If you have been following me for any amount of time, you know how terrible I am at pronouncing uh, things in other languages that aren't Spanish, French, or English. Those are the only ones I've ever studied or learned or anything. So Okay. Anyway, that's apparently happy Thursday. And thank you for <laughs> thank you for sharing your language with us. It says I have a question about boundaries. Why am I testing boundaries of my therapist? I don't uh, want to do it, but it's just happening, and I get irritated at myself for doing it. Do you have any tips? And do you get annoyed as a therapist when your client is testing your boundaries? Thanks for all that you do and all the mental health information that you're giving me. Of course, happy to. Um, this is an interesting question because it's very common for patients to test the boundaries of their therapist and know we don't get irritated. But let me get, I want to tell you a little bit about the why. Like, why do we do it? Because it sounds like you're kind of judging yourself, right? You're really irritated and frustrated that you're even doing this. But it's very common to do it. And the reason being is that when we test boundaries of other people, it's it's usually something that's done in like our periodically, like toddlers start to do it. And then we do it again in a big way when we're like teenagers or preteens. And the way that, or the reason that we do it is it's a way to kind of see what's okay and not okay so that we can feel safe in knowing what to do. And it's also done as a way to uh, be independent and like test our independence, right? I get to do what I want to do. You don't tell me what to do. I do it. And we can push those boundaries of what's okay and not okay, especially with regard to our parents. But honestly, any person who is in a power position, this could be a therapist, a teacher, um, a mentor, another parent figure in your life, a coach. Um, So that's really why we do it. It's a way to either assert our independence and kind of test it out. Or like I said, the first thing is to see what's okay and not okay so that we can feel safe. And especially if we have any kind of abuse, whether it's emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse in our past at any point in our life, that testing to make sure that we feel safe is really important to us because in other scenarios in our life when we were abused, we could have thought that we had some role in it. I'm I'm here to tell you that it's never your fault. There's nothing you could ever do to make someone harm you that way. It's not okay. But we internalize that sometimes thinking that, oh, if I had just acted in this perfect way or I had just done this better or had said the right thing to my mom or my dad or my uncle or whatever, then none of this would happen or none of this would have happened, right? We can think that we could have changed it. And therefore, we aren't sure what's okay and not okay. So we test these boundaries so that we know And then we're like, okay, I'm safe doing this, right? Because that, I got a bad response, that I got a good response, you know, and we're just kind of like taking up the space that we think is appropriate for us, which is honestly why a lot of people who have histories of abuse become people pleasers, because the space space that feels safe that we can stay in is usually very small. And so we want to apologize for everything we've done that 
that requires us to take up more space or maybe to get into someone's way, even though we have just as much of a right to be there as they do. So anyway, that those are usually the reasons that we test the boundaries. Now, in therapy in particular, so we test boundaries in life in general. It's just part of development. It's part of becoming an adult. We all do it at different times. Like I said, a toddler, usually preteen, teen years, and sometimes even in our 20s as we like make it out on our own. But when it comes to therapy, we have, it's really about that feeling safe the majority of the time. I'm not saying for everybody, right? Everyone's experience is going to be different and unique in their own little way. But in therapy, in order to feel okay and safe enough to share whatever it is we need to share, maybe it's about abuse we sustained in our past. Maybe it's about the fact that we have an eating disorder or we have some suicidal thoughts or whatever it may be, right? We often are talking to a therapist about something we've never shared with anyone else. And so that feeling even if it's not necessarily feeling safe, but feeling okay, like neutral, not in our fight, flight, freeze response or what we would call our stress response, we, in order to get that feeling so that we can share what we need to share, we test those boundaries first. And then again, we kind of know what's okay and not okay and we feel like we can move forward. And so that's really why. And as a therapist, it happens almost all like constantly, almost with every patient, I would say in some way, in one way or another. And I don't get irritated. It's actually just helpful information. And it's actually great that you notice that you're doing it. And if you feel able, I would highly encourage you to tell your therapist that you notice this happening because that the fact that you know it's happening and the fact that, you know, you have this awareness is really key and will be really helpful in your therapeutic process. And if you hear the dog barking, it's because she, like I said, she's a very spirited dog. Roxy gets very excited. <laughs> um, anyways, so to move on to the final question in within this question, it says, do you have any tips and do you um, get annoyed? Okay, so the tips. I haven't gotten into the tip part of it. Now, honestly, the the ways to stop doing it is is really tied up in the the what's in it for you. So taking some time to consider like why you think you're doing it, based on what I've told you, I've given you a lot of different reasons and a lot of different examples of like why people have done it and why we think people do it. Maybe those work for you, maybe they don't. But think about it, be curious about your experience and why you find the urge or you feel rather the urge to do this. Take some time. What's in, what's in it for you? What does this, does this help you self-soothe? Is this something you've done in other parts of your life? Are there other relationships you've found yourself testing boundaries? Like I said, like uh, people in positions of power. So teacher, coach, maybe boss, uh, parent, older sibling, you know, uh, maybe a boss at work. Not a boss, but like a, because uh, I already said boss, but someone like a supervisor, like someone who's a little bit ahead of you, or maybe a bully, maybe someone, you know, are there different people who have kind of, you felt like they're in like more positions of power than you? Have you found yourself doing this? with them as well. I would just be curious about it because until we know what we get from something, we can't get rid of it. And there's this old, uh, I forget the book that it's in, but anyway, it's called uh, Chesterton's Fence. And I write about it in my book, Traumatized. And the analogy of Chesterton's Fence is that this guy walks, uh, he's walking down the road and he sees this fence along the side, bordering into land that he doesn't understand why it's even there. Because if he walks a little farther, he can get around it. So it's not really doing anything. It's just this chunk of fence. And he says he says to the guy who, I don't even know, because it's a, like, a, like a fable, you know? He says to a guy who owns the land, he's like, I think we should remove this fence. It's not even doing any good. It doesn't make any sense why it's here. And the guy says to him, well, if you can tell me why, it is was here to begin with, like why it's here and what purpose it did serve or what purpose it does still serve, 
then and only then can you remove it. But until you tell me that information, we can't remove it. And that's really applicable to a lot of things in life where it's like, hey, if I don't even know why this is here, why I'm doing this, then how am I supposed to get rid of it? We can't. And I think that is honestly is one of the biggest stumbling blocks that a lot of us can experience in therapy is we can feel like the need to stop doing something. Like I have to stop uh, using drugs or alcohol. I have to stop using self-injury. I have to stop being depressed. I have to stop uh, you know, using eating disorder behavior. I have to stop over-exercise. I have to stop all this stuff. But we can't just stop it without understanding why it's there in the first place. That's like getting to the root of the root, which I talk about how important that is because once we understand why something's there, then and only then can we successfully remove it. Are you guys following? I hope that makes sense and isn't too, you know, I'm in my head on that one. But be a detective. I wish I was wearing my detective shirt. I have a detective shirt. If you guys don't know, I'm wearing, if you're just listening, oh, here it is. Sorry, it's hard for me to see in the camera which side this is, but I'm wearing my puffer fish shirt where it's like, me holding up a mirror and I'm a puffer fish and I think it's very cute. Anyway, I have one that's a detective too and it's me, you know, Katie as a detective with a one of those like magnifying glasses over my eye. Okay, enough about that. Let's move on to question number two. Question number two says, hey Katie, I hope you're doing well. How do I appreciate the happy moments where my depression disappears and all I can think in the back of my mind is when will it get bad again? This is a great question. And something that is unfortunately incredibly common. And the reason that we even have this happen, the reason that in happy moments, our depression's like, hey, I'm still here. Hey, it's going to turn to shit soon, right? It can feel like it robs us of any excitement, any enjoyment, and any appreciation. And the truth about this is that it's because your depression is still there. And the only real way to, well, and there are some tips and tools I can offer in the meantime, but the real way is to fully treat it. And what I mean by that, and it's definitely a therapist term, like to treat the depression, right? That's something that we would say. But as a patient, my goal for you would be to tell your therapist, your psychiatrist that you're still experiencing residual symptoms. That's what we would call this. Like, you know, your depression can go away sometimes, but it's still there in a little way where it's like, oh, when are things going to get bad, right? It's already like preparing you for the worst. And so, that needs to continue, that still needs to be treated, meaning maybe we need a higher dose of our medication if we're on it, or we need to try medication if we're open to that and our psychiatrist thinks it would work for us. Or maybe we need more therapy. Maybe we were going to stop, but we might need more sessions and we need more tools to help us in the meantime. And so what I would really encourage you to do is for, for now is to start paying attention to these thoughts noticing what triggers them or even looking back. Maybe it's best to look back so we don't like further mess up the moment. Looking back at when this happened last, like what came up for you? What do you think triggered it? Why was that there? Let's be, again, be curious about our experience. Be curious about this thought process. And my hypothesis is that nothing triggered it, that it's just there. But for some people, there are triggers. And if we can identify those triggers, then we can find ways to better manage. And let's say the trigger is, I talked to my, I don't know, my mom, and she's not very supportive, and she said something hurtful, or my sister texted me something shitty, and so then I started having negative thoughts all day long, right? We might have something like that. And so things that we could do in that case would be healthy boundaries or, um, you know, communicating to them that that's not appropriate and you can't talk to me that way. Again, kind of healthy boundaries, but it's still like communicating what's okay, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, 
could be limiting our time with someone. It could be working on our own positive self-talk, which does benefit everybody in this world. But for most people, I find that there's not, we don't know the trigger. It just like came out of nowhere. And to me, that says that your depression is still running the show. And in order to stop it and to get to enjoy moments, we can distract. So I have a video called 25 Coping Skills. So just get onto YouTube and type in 25 Coping Skills, Katie Morton, and it will come up. And I would encourage you to check that out and find some that work for you because there are distraction-based coping skills and there are process-based coping skills. And because your mind is like pulling you away and there's no real trigger and we're not even sure what's happening, distraction would probably be the first thing that I would do, work on some distraction coping skills. And then we can work on some process-based ones, considering more of the like why this is happening. Once we uh, distracted enough, we might be able to, you know, not feel so engulfed in the depressive thoughts. And we can kind of maybe think a little bit more clearly and be able to enjoy Uh, enjoy those moments, maybe a little bit longer, but also better understand where that's coming from. Um, Yeah, I I wish there was an easier answer. I know this, it's a very long-winded, very labor-intensive answer, but it's really the truth. Depression happens for a lot of different reasons. Number one, our brain doesn't have as much serotonin or dopamine as other brains, right? Or maybe as our brain used to, and so we're not as happy, right? Those are our feel-good hormones and uh, neurotransmitters in our brain, and so we're like, womp, womp. And when we feel that way, that can't just be fixed by like, put on a happy face or um, you know, just just get out of bed and like move your body. And yes, these things can make us feel better in the short term, but that toxic positivity isn't going to move us anywhere real. And so until we do this work where we figure out maybe what the triggers are, or if there aren't necessarily triggers, what can, what can we healthfully use to distract? And then can we like maybe process through what's coming up for us or maybe that means that we set aside some time to cry or are we taking care of our basic needs? You know, there's a lot of different things that we can kind of look at and do to help lower our depressive symptoms. Because again, this is a residual symptom of depression. It means that we just need further treatment. And so, yeah, because even though in, the, in this question, the person says where my depression disappears, I don't think it fully disappears. That's my argument is that it's still there. Um, and it's also... And this is the last thing I'll say about this. This could also be happening because sometimes when we're so used to a shitty way of life, whether that's abuse-ridden, depression, anxiety-ridden, you know, suicidal thoughts, whatever it is, we're so used to it that anything that doesn't have that, right, anything happy, anything that's going our way, we're like, hmm, this is suspicious, right? I'm not used to this. Hmm. And the, the truth is the only way to make that when it, when will it get bad again thought go away is to just continue doing the things that make you feel good because over time you will slowly become comfortable with things being better and happier but right now they feel false and weird and maybe unsafe because we're like I don't usually experience happy things and usually when I do things turn out to be shit later or it gets worse you know and so instead of being able to enjoy those happy moments we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop because we're like well we're like hyper vigilant for something bad to happen. And the only way to disprove that is through having more positive things happen. Yes, exposure therapy can be helpful where we like talk about positive things that have happened and try to manage what comes up for us. It's a little bit trickier when it comes like using exposure therapy in that way, but I think that there are still some tools and techniques that could be beneficial. But again, it's really just repetition and having those good things happen more and more and more will slowly prove to you that 
good things can happen and it will be okay. And it doesn't mean it's all going to turn to shit and that things will inevitably go wrong because they might not, right? Just as much as they might, they also might not. Okay, let's move on to question number three. And this question says, hi, Katie, how can I stop idealizing my therapist? I really idealize my therapist and keep telling my therapist how much I love her and how I never want her to leave me. Sounds maybe like borderline personality disorder a little bit. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with it, but my therapist seems so perfect to me, even if I know on a rational level she isn't. But I'm, I'm focused on loving everything about her, so I only see her as the best person. Is it unhealthy to feel this way? I can't stop my feelings towards her, and I don't even know if I could. Is there anything that would help me see her as my therapist without idealizing her too much? How do you deal with patients idealizing you? This is a great question. And my uh, spidey senses for borderline personality disorder are like going off all the red flags because what is happening here, at least from my perspective, and as you guys know, in my practice, I used to treat a ton of borderline personality disorder patients. Um, A lot of times it goes hand in hand with eating disorders, which is what I specialize in, and self-injury, which is also what I specialize in. And so when we think that someone's the best person and that everything they do is just perfect, that's what's called splitting. Now, we usually talk about splitting when it comes to like thinking that someone's terrible or that, you know, they've, they always do everything to upset us. But really what splitting is, this, this is terminology that's used a lot in borderline patients, is that we're all or nothing. It's like black and white. It's very split. People are either all good and amazing and the best person like you see your therapist as, or they're out to get us. They're terrible. They're going to leave us anyway. Blah. What a shit show. We hate that person, right? And it's very common when we struggle with borderline personality disorder to have immediately put people in this best person category only to have them do so, do the smallest slight, meaning like if your therapist like had to cancel last minute for a session, or I've even had patients who got this happened with like a friend of theirs where they said something they didn't like, or they had to like reschedule something. And that fear of abandonment was like, wah, 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 wah. like they're so worried that someone's going to leave them that they move them from the best person to the worst person ever. What an asshole. I hate them really like horribly. And the reason for us doing this splitting behavior, right, from going from, oh, you're the best person to fuck you what happened is protective. If someone is the best person and I think they're just amazing and everything about them is wonderful and then they leave me that wound is going to be really, really hard for me to manage, especially if I have borderline personality disorder, right? Because it's like we're emotional burn victims. Every slight is super painful. And emotionally, we just feel like we can't handle it. So instead of leaving someone in that amazing person or best person category, I'm going to move them into the worst and say they're just a shit person and terrible. Because then if they decide to leave me, It might not hurt as bad because they're already a shit person. Or even better, I'm going to leave them first. You're a shitty person. I don't want you in my life. And we can do that kind of behavior, this all or nothing, this amazing or terrible. And really what it is, is just, it's like us puffer fishing. It's us sticking out our spines to protect ourselves from potentially being hurt later. Now, I know I went on a tangent, but I really thought that was important. And that's really what all of my red flags, like what was happening in my mind when I read this question. But... Let's say I'm off base and BPD is not something you're struggling with. What else could be happening? Why could this be happening? 
Now, we could see our therapist as just the best person ever, so loving, so amazing, everything that we ever wanted because of attachment issues. Now, yes, that could relate to BPD, but not always. Some people just didn't have a very healthy or loving upbringing. And so we look out in our environment for people who we think can fill that void. And your therapist is probably super caring, consistent, gives you a lot of the things that maybe you needed from your mother or your father that you didn't get. And so we're trying to take our therapist and we're trying to squish them into that mom or dad hole that was left in our heart. And so we're trying to shove it in there and make it fit. And the best way to do that is to be like, oh my God, she's so perfect and amazing. Everything's gonna be great, right? And we're like, as we're saying, as we're thinking, that's like us shoving her into that hole. And so there's nothing wrong with it. It's incredibly common, especially because in the therapeutic relationship, we often are able to get the things that we aren't able to get or haven't been able to get in our life up until this point. And so we finally have someone we can talk to in a real way who shows up for us consistently, who validates and supports and shows compassion for us. And all of that can be intoxicating. And we might not know what to do with that because We've never received it before. And for some people, it can be incredibly uncomfortable. But for others, it can be, like I said, intoxicating. We're like, I want more of it. I want more of it. And that could be what's happening here is we are just like in love with the therapeutic process and we think our therapist is amazing. And my encouragement for you would be to tell your therapist this. And I know that might be uncomfortable. You're worried. You're like, oh, she's going to think I'm a weirdo. No, like I said, it's incredibly common. And the Usually as a therapist, at a certain period of time, I don't know how long it usually takes me, but let's say like a month or two, you can notice when a patient is doing this and it it might take us longer as a therapist to call it out because we don't want to harm the relationship or make you think that it's not okay, but it would be, but we will start drawing attention to it, you know? Um, so there's that. And then I do think that, so I think it would be more important or more beneficial if you're able to bring it up with your therapist since you're acutely aware that this is happening. And the sooner we can bring it up and talk about it, I really think the sooner we'll be able to kind of figure out why it's happening for you and what is causing this to come up. Is it like attachment-based stuff from childhood? Is it abuse-based? Is it borderline personality disorder? What is it? You know, We'd, we'd have to take some time talking and asking questions and maybe doing some assessments to know for sure. But the sooner you can tell your therapist, I think the better. And um, yeah, I guess that, I hope that answers all of your questions. It's not unhealthy to feel this way. We just have to figure out where it's coming from. Because usually when we have behavior or feelings that we think are just a little different, like it sounds like you think this is a little different, right? You're like, I'm idealizing here too much. That is just like a little flag for something else going on. So this is just a symptom of something else. And we said to figure out what that something else is. I have a couple ideas, like I said, but only you know you. And we need to spend the time talking with our therapist about it so we can figure out what it is. Now, there was a comment on this and says, furthermore, when does this idealization become unhealthy? I had a therapist in high school and I had to stop seeing her because she was school-based. I'm now a senior in college and I haven't gone back to long-term therapy because when I tried, I always kept wanting to talk to Heather and I couldn't go to a session without saying Heather would have done, you know, X, Y, or Z, or imagining that I was talking to Heather or wanting to talk to, was talking to her or wanting to talk to her. It made it so that I have, haven't been able to work on anything for the last three years. Now I sought her out after years of not seeing her and I'm actually able to see her again. And she's no longer only, oh, as she is no longer only school-based. I have an appointment, but I wonder if because I idealize her so much, if it's a good idea. Is this idealization unhealthy? 
How do I work through it? Should I not see her because it might make the idealization worse? Wow, that's like, I don't know why that word is hard for me, idealization. Um, This is a great question. Now, you'd have to be, I'm curious, or I'm suspicious, I guess, not even curious. I'm suspicious of whether or not we think Heather is, again, that like perfect person, like I was talking about, like the best person. I wonder if she's in that role. And my hypothesis is that it's, it's okay for you to go back and see her. We should tell her that that has been happening, that you've struggled to work with anybody else because you had such a good connection with her and you always thought like, well, she would have done this. Please let her know this as soon as you feel comfortable, like the sooner the better. Because I am, again, suspicious of that splitting where if she has to cancel or something changes, you know, how are we going to react to that? Because I, I wonder if we p- tried to stuff her in that that hole from our childhood or whatever, where we wish someone had cared for us more. I wonder if we tried to stuff her in there. And now that she's not school-based, let's say she's on vacation for two weeks, or or let's say she pairs down her practice and has to refer you out. How are we going to tolerate that? Because she won't have the the real reason behind it that, oh, she's just school-based and so you graduate and you're out of the program. You know, I, I wonder how we'll tolerate those things. So it might behoove you to start considering that and like journaling about how you would feel if that happened. I know it sounds shitty to have to think about something terrible like that and like how would you manage, but it's important now so that we can then offer that information to her and be like, you know, I gave it some thought um, and I think that this happened because of this and I'm not sure if I have attachment issues or if it's borderline person. You know, you can bring up some potential options or what you think it is for you so that you can work through this. Because again, this is just a symptom of something else going on. This isn't a problem. It's just something that tells us. It's like a little red flag that's like, hey, something else is going on down here. You just got to dig in and figure it out. And so we have to take that time to dig in and figure out where it's coming from. And it's, again, super common, but we won't be able to work through it or process what happened until we're curious about it. Again, it's like that Chesterton's fence. We can't just like try to get rid of this. We have to figure out why it's there in the first place, right? Why are we so attached to our therapist from years ago? What was it about her? Was it the time of our life that we saw her? Was it just the fact that we felt like she was the first person to really get us? There could be just a lot of that. Like our first therapist can sometimes leave a lasting impression. Or is it more to do with the fact that we think, you know, she finally treated us the way that like our mom never did? Or is it that we're, you know, we're so worried about abandonment that not being able to see her has been like horrible and we're so glad we get her back. You know, what what's coming up for you? In this case, my, it's more of that. I am worried about the splitting and potential BPD, but my gut tells me that it's actually more about attachment. So those are my thoughts. Be curious about it. Figure out where it's coming from for you. Um, it's okay to talk about it. It's incredibly common. And I think that you can see her. I feel like this could be a really healing thing for you, for you to be able to figure it out and work through it in a healthy way. Because if we don't utilize this amazing relationship and our ability to take this time to work through it, then we could just run into other scenarios later on in life and like do this again and replay it again. Because it's very common that if this is something that we struggle with, we'll keep trying it in every relationship that we have. And it's like our brain's way of saying like, hey, we need to work on this. Hey, I'm still struggling. Um, And so I think it's great that you're still seeing her and that you're going to go back, but we have to talk about this and we need to bring this up because it's really, really important. Sorry, if you're just, if you're watching, I have something in my eye that's itching. Okay. 
Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie, I'm in counseling for depression and anxiety. However, I find I have a strong reluctance around getting better. I think there are a variety of reasons. Depression defines me. So without it, I'm not sure who I am. And it gives me a lot of excuses as to why I'm not successful or more active. When I'm told I'm making progress, my first instinct is to deny it. Worst of all, when my counselor points out that I have been given plenty of tools for managing low mood and improving, but do not use them, I find this very upsetting. Do you have any thoughts on addressing this reluctance around improving and potentially getting better? You called it out right away that it's you. it defines you. You feel like it's part of who you are. And therefore, if it's not there, then who am I? And that concern of who am I can be so overwhelming and so frightening that we would prefer to not find out and not try to figure it out. Also, it's a big undertaking, right? It can feel like this huge mountain that we have to climb. We're like, I don't know if I can know who I am and everybody else seems to know and like, oh my God, right? And we can have almost like an identity crisis for for lack of identity. And so lo- like latching on to our mental illness and being like, that's my identity. That's an easy thing, especially with social media. I've always encouraged my patients and I'll even say it here because I encourage each and every one of you. If you have your diagnosis in any of your profiles, please remove it. That doesn't tell anybody anything about you. It tells them something that you're struggling with and that's it. And sure, you could have it in there, I guess, but I want you to at least have three other things about yourself that are not mental illness based, okay? Because it goes to this like who you are and that's just like one small portion of who you are. I know it may feel like it's all of who you are, but I'm here to tell you it is not. There's so much more to you. There's so much more to your sense of humor and your intelligence, things that you enjoy and don't enjoy, vacations that you've taken or things you want to take, career paths that you want to have, how animals that you have, families that you're part of, friends that you're part like friend groups you're part of. There's so much more to you or so much more that will be to you as you actually adventure out and figure out what you like and don't like and who you want to be around and who you don't want to be around. Defining ourselves by our mental illness is a very unhealthy thing because of things like this. Because then we can feel like we don't know who we are and then getting better means not knowing, right? Because if we get better, then it's like, well, then we're in that identity crisis. Well, who am I? And it can be really, really difficult and make it hard for us to get better. It's like an additional defense that we have up that will prevent us from trying to work on things and actually improve. And so we'll feel like shit for longer, which nobody wants to, right? If we actually consciously think about it, nobody wants that. And so, okay, let's dig into this a little bit more. Um, The question is, do you have any thoughts on addressing this reluctance around improving and potentially getting better? To be honest, my number one recommendation here is to tell your therapist that this is happening. I don't know if you have, it doesn't say, because you said that you do find yourself upset when you're making, when she says you're making progress because your first instinct is to deny it. But if your counselor points out that you've been given plenty of tools, but you don't use them, that's upsetting too. Please tell your therapist about this. Tell your therapist about this reluctance. I think that it's definitely tied to who you are and who, you, who you're going to have to be if you do get better, right? Well, what's left of me if not this? And I would encourage you to use your therapeutic time to talk about that. Because that tells me that, you know, like the question before, we're trying to get to the root of what happened and like the root of why something's there. We have, your why is right in here. It's it's like these little flags are like, oh, 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 flying up because 
If you're not depressed or anxious, then who are you? So your depression and anxiety must be filling a role of defining you, helping you feel safe in your, I don't know what you would call it, I guess just like how you think about yourself, your perception of your personality or what you're about. They're filling that role probably, again, just hypothesizing here, probably because either it's been around for so long, your depression and anxiety. I mean, they've been around for so long that you never got the opportunity to explore who you are and be curious about that. That could be why. Or it could be the only thing we've ever experienced in the times when everybody else was getting to define themselves. So other people were being curious and we didn't feel safe. Maybe maybe we had abuse in our past, right? So we never felt safe to really seek understanding and try out new things because that we weren't sure if that was safe. We might get harmed more. We might get in trouble, right? We never felt, it never felt okay for us to try to figure out who we were, hence depression and anxiety, right? So we, we have those things happen to us because it's a mental illness. It's not something we create or cause, but we have that illness. And during that time when we're normal, like kids our age, maybe who didn't have abuse or had supportive parents are out figuring out what they like and don't like, we find ourselves struggling with depression and anxiety because it doesn't feel safe to try anything out. And so that's what we define ourselves as. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. It's like if we had a healthy upbringing, then we would have felt safe to go out into the world and explore. But if we didn't have a healthy upbringing and no safe foundation, then it's not safe to go out. And then we develop depression and anxiety. And so while everybody else is like figuring out things they like and don't like, we figure out we are depression and anxiety. That's that's what we're about. That's who we are. And so those are just some of my hypotheses about where it came from and why it's here. And not wanting to get better is probably because we don't know who we are and that's really scary, but it's okay. We're all still decide. We're every day we're figuring out who we are over again. People, you know, we're all works in progress. Don't think that there's any time frame with which you're supposed to figure out things that you like and don't like or what friends you want to have and don't have. We can always rethink that, start over. And we all kind of should consider that from time to time. Be okay with change. Be okay with learning something new, trying something else. That's just part of healthy development. So, and even as adults, not like development through child years. It's a healthy development as a human in life. So there's that. And then I also wonder if, so we, we have an identity crisis, but also I think it might be that maybe we need positive attention. Humans need attention. This is not a put down. This is not a judgment. Everybody needs attention. But it might be that you need attention and we don't know how else to get it if we're not in therapy. So if I don't need it, then I shouldn't, you know, that could be difficult too. It could be part of that attachment thing also. Anyway, there could be a lot of different reasons. You said there are a variety of reasons. And so, and I don't really think necessarily it gives you a lot of excuses. I mean, it it could, I would dive into that with your therapist because I think it gives you a reason for not being as successful as maybe you think you should be or as active as you think you should be. And I think that there's probably something in there where we're talking really shittily to ourselves about our progress in life. And so, Blaming on depression gives us a scapegoat. If we don't have that scapegoat, then we have to acknowledge why. And again, that's work you can do in therapy right now. Is like, if I don't blame depression for my lack of success or activity, then I blame myself. And what does that look like? 
what comes up for me. Yes, I know it's going to be painful. Nobody wants to blame themselves for anything, but we you probably already are. In your head and the way you talk to yourself, you're probably full of judgment, full of shit talking. And so just do some do some deep diving. Be a detective for about your experience, about the whys, about what you think it brings up for you. There, there's just so many ways this could go and so many reasons this could be happening. And everyone's going to be different. So I want you to feel free to figure it out for you. And talking about this with your therapist and being honest about your reluctance will be the first step towards this and will help you move toward getting better while at the same time managing what comes up for you. Because my my guess would be that if we slowly but surely start moving towards feeling better, our anxiety is probably going to go up. And we're probably going to feel a little dysregulated. And like I said, maybe have what we would call an identity crisis where you're like, who am I? What do I like? What do I not like? Well, we can feel really overwhelmed, but we're going to need to have some resources to help us soothe our system and some ways that we can manage that so that we can cope. So these could be coping skills like processing through using an impulse log, or maybe we start journaling more. Maybe we distract a little bit sometimes when it gets to be too overwhelming. Again, I have that video, 25 Coping Skills. I would encourage you to check it out um, and pick some that you think might work for you and give them a try. Now, there was a comment on this and it said, I'm kind of having the same problem. My therapist hasn't said that I've been given many tools. I don't think I have. But when she mentioned deep breathing, she also said that things uh, only things will only change if I make one. I find myself saying, I don't want to use or do what normal people uh, don't need to. I don't want to be like everyone else. Oh, I want to be like everyone else. I don't want this or I don't want to need this. If asked, I'd say the reason for my current struggles is people in general. I work retail and have um, we have to ask people to wear masks, but people in, um, oh, okay, that's just a repeat, says, but people in general. So they have to ask people to wear masks. I don't want to live in this world because of the people that inhabit it, and I was never one to be self-serving, so I can't just focus on myself. What are your thoughts? I think, to be honest, um, you're having a really tough time. It sounds like situational depression right now because of what is going on in our world. And I think that that's very, very common, especially now because it's like our world's on fire and we're all just sitting in a room with like it on fire, right? We're like, everything's fine. Don't worry. And so I think it's really normal for you to feel overwhelmed and to struggle with like, what's this all about? What's worth, is this worth it? Right. And every day going to work is probably really difficult. Talk to your therapist about that. And I would encourage you I mean, the tools, if she's only mentioned deep breathing, I would ask for more tools or maybe watch some of my older videos about like coping with depression or anxiety or even my coping skills video that actually is filled with those things. Come up with some things that can work for you in the moment because it sounds like your situation right now, your your job in particular, and just the state of our world is overwhelming and it's making it hard for you to have any motivation or positive outlook. I think a lot of people are right where you're at right now, but that doesn't mean that we have to stay there. So having some ways to cope Uh, I'd encourage you, if you have some friends from work that you actually like or colleagues that are pretty friendly, it could be helpful to go out with them and just to vent about everything that's going on, especially at work, because they'll get it and they're right there with you. And they're like, oh my God, I remember that person. They were so rude, right? You have a place to then talk about it, get it off your chest and get it out. And I believe through, you know, getting some more tools and resources from your therapist or even through my videos, you know, I'm here to be a resource. If I can be helpful, that is like, makes me feel so good about all the work that I put in for my YouTube channel. That's the whole reason it's here. 
And so check that stuff out, get some resources, ask your therapist for them as well, and see if you can find a way to get together with some of your colleagues and vent about it safely if you feel okay doing that. But all of that will help. Definitely, it's been a shitty couple of years here. You're not alone. And working in retail, I can't even imagine. It's hard. Customer service stuff and working like with people all day long is hard enough. Trust me. I used to work as a waitress for many years and people can be assholes and it's really stressful. So we need to give you safe places to kind of vent it and get support where you need. And I hope that helps. Okay, let's get into question number five. And this question says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday, happy Thursday. It says, I'm curious as to how you would prepare your clients slash patients for when you were out of the office for a vacation or such. I mean, for those going in weekly, are there any tips that you provide for coping if a session cannot be held weekly? I have weekly sessions and the idea of not going in gives me anxiety. I am currently living week to week, day to day, and I don't want to seem needy, but maybe that that's what it is. Thank you. No, that's not what it is. Consistency is really key and very therapeutic. Even just having that ritual and the 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 knowledge that we are going to go in and we're going to have a place to like dump everything and receive some support and validation. It's something that we can look forward to and our not only can we emotionally depend on it, but some it's like somewhere deep inside of us on like a subconscious level, it's like our entire body, like physically and mentally, we we yearn for it, we look forward to it, and we get used to that like rhythm. And so the thought of not having it causes a lot of people anxiety or just overwhelm. And so the way that I prepare is usually with a lot of homework and a lot of uh, like whether it's a workbook or assignments or just things that I want them to try out. And I usually have them keep track of this homework or these worksheets or whatever it may be is by journaling or emailing me, knowing farewell that I will not reply to their emails, but that they'll be out there and we can go over the stuff when I get back. Um, I also usually have another therapist that they can call if they have an emergency or something goes on, you have to have someone cover for you in the, in any kind of health field. But um, in the therapist realm, you, know, you always have a colleague of yours that will cover for you when you're out of town. Um, and then if someone is really struggling, I will sometimes do check-ins, but that's very rare. It's usually only in like an emergency kind of scenario. So overall, the kind of homework that I give people, it kind of depends on what we're working on, but I just, I have them like commit and it's not like, oh, you have to do it this way. But usually I have people commit to taking that hour that they normally be in my office every week and taking that time to do the homework. And yes, we should or could do homework on other days as well, which is kind of good if it's something that we're going to try to practice like behaviorally, or maybe we're going to try to communicate a little bit more, right? I'm still going to want you to do those things. But at that hour, like let's say you come into my office every Thursday at 4 p.m., Thursday at 4 p.m. from 4 to 5, I want you to do that worksheet or that workbook or homework or journaling or whatever it is so that as your body, whether you realize it or not, prepares for therapy, that you're going to take advantage of that. And so, I mean, the homework really varies. It's hard for me to tell you what it would be, but at the very least, I have my patients continue tracking feelings that come up and journal about you know, their thoughts about them and stuff like that. But if you're, I mean, if you're struggling with anxiety, because you mentioned anxiety, a lot of times I'll have my patients, you know, utilize coping skills and tell me which ones work and don't work and put together kind of like an anxiety safety plan. And so, yeah, I would ask your therapist before they leave on vacation for homework or things to do while they're gone. Uh, You could even say, hey, are there workbooks I could purchase or certain things I need to journal about? And 
the counting the number of weeks are going to be gone, make sure you have your regular homework stuff set up as well as something for that hour. And that usually keeps my patients going. It helps them feel like there's still a sense of consistency. And even if I'm gone, they still have some work that they're going to do so that we don't feel like because I'm out of the office that they can't make any progress. So that's that's how I do it. And you're not needy. A lot of people look forward to it and we get ready for it. And it's something that we, you know, clearly we need. So let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie. I was wondering how to stop being sick on the day of therapy. It can be hours after and I'll be sick every time without fail. I don't think things are going too fast, but I'm now getting nauseous and very anxious too. I don't know why this keeps happening. I'm in the process of getting diagnosed for PTSD, by the way. Thank you for all that you do. Of course. Uh, the truth of the, about this is that I don't think you're going too fast either. That might be something, but usually not when it's when it's this experience. If you're sick on the day of therapy, it's usually the emotional buildup of knowing that we're going in to talk about things we normally don't talk about, or we're going to dig into trauma and we never have shared that with anyone and it overwhelms our body and our system. And so truthfully, the way to stop being sick on the day of therapy is to have some coping skills and some ways to regulate your nervous system. Now, these can be things like doing a full body shake, journaling about what's coming up for you and how you're feeling. Because what this is, is the physical manifestation of our emotional experience. So your emotional experience is that of overwhelm, uh, dysregulation, uh, feeling very nervous, maybe anxious, unex- you, you don't know what to expect. And so all of that is causing your your maybe your gut a lot if you guys don't know our we call it kind of the like the lizard brain but it's like this bare bones like basic human existence our brain is connected directly to our gut which is why when a lot of us feel anxious or overwhelmed we can feel nauseous have diarrhea uh any kind of like gastrointestinal stuff which is also why like having a lot of trauma can lead to other gut issues like uh Crohn's colitis or IBS, things like that, so or IBD. Um, anyway, that's that's a, like we can make a whole video on that stuff. So anyway, we need to find some things that help you feel better. This could be a nice warm shower, a cold shower, journaling, body shakes, doing an impulse log, uh, listening to some kind of music, doing some deep breathing. Maybe belly breathing might be helpful. There can be a lot of different things. I would encourage you to to think of try some of those out and you know come up with some that feel good for you. But also you can check out my video 25 coping skills for some more ideas. And it's really just that emotional buildup that's causing you all this discomfort. And if we can find some ways to even bring it down by like 10, 15%, you will feel that much better. And then that means that we're making progress. We can keep doing it. And I promise you we'll get to a point where you don't feel so overwhelmed or so sick the day of therapy. Um, it just takes some practice, but you got it. I know you can do it. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hi, Katie, how do we move past our trauma when we have to return to it? I had a very very traumatizing experience at college over a year ago, and I had to withdraw from school this year after trying to return because it was too overwhelming. I feel like I can't return to my dream school because of this experience. And if I try to look at other schools for a fresh start, I end up having a panic attack at just the thought of it. I feel so stuck in my life and wish I could move past the trauma and do what I truly want to with my life. Thank you. Okay, so a couple of things. Now, sure, you have the option, maybe, hopefully, to do school online, you know, to do distance learning, especially now almost everything is like distance learning. But if not, 
and you really want to return to school, the only way we're going to be able to do that is to push through. And what I mean by that is find a trauma specialist and start processing that trauma. And part of that processing will have to be exposure therapy, exposure to things that remind you of college, whether that's like imagining that you're going there thinking, looking at pictures of you being there, or maybe even having your therapist take you to the campus if it's close enough, or going yourself, and and slowly building up and soothing our system, finding ways to better manage, because what we need to prove to your nervous system is that the college campus or college campuses in general are not always dangerous and are not always going to be traumatizing. Sure, we had that situation, but that doesn't mean that it's completely horrible and we can never step foot there anymore because that's what your brain's doing right now. It's trying to protect you. And it's like hypervigilant sounding the alarm, like get out, get out, get out. And that's why you can't stay there and you have panic attacks or, you know, feel overwhelmed. And so that's really the only way to manage is to go through it. And so if you aren't seeing a therapist, I would encourage you to find one. And hopefully, and maybe they offer them for free through your university. That's how I um, found my, one of my favorite therapists, Rebecca, that I saw for many years through undergrad and part of graduate school. And, and when my dad passed away, like she was the one that was amazing and really helped me become a better me. And so I really think finding a, you know, a trauma specialist, seeing them regularly, even maybe consider doing some EMDR or any other types of trauma treatment, but exposure therapy is really where it's going to be at for to get you through this so that you can return to your dream school and finish. And yes, I know I'm, I'm talking about it like it's easy peasy. I know it's hard. Exposure therapy is really difficult. But the cool thing to keep in mind when you're doing exposure therapy is to know that usually, I want I don't know the percentage, but let's just guesstimate, like 80% of people do not need to do it again. It's like unlike other treatments where we might need ongoing care or we need to come in every so often for booster sessions, when it comes to exposure therapy, for most people, it's like one and done. Like once we've actually worked our way up the hierarchy of fear or whatever, is like yours would be like going to college, like whatever it is that's holding us back. We've worked our way all the way up and are able to soothe and prove to our brain and our body that there's nothing terrifying about doing that thing. It's very unlikely that we have to return and do it again. Sure, sometimes people will go in for a session or two and like life is really, really stressful. Let's say they're like moving and they just had a baby or going through a divorce or there's just something tumultuous happening, like a bunch of different things. Then we can find ourselves like reverting back to that. And so it's important to go in and get a couple booster sessions and then you're fine. But it's it's not that common and it's actually amazing to be able to work through something and know that you won't have to go back and do it again. And so I cannot encourage you enough to find a trauma specialist who does exposure therapy. And it's okay to ask them before you even make an appointment. When you leave a message or reach out, you can say, hey, I'm looking for a trauma specialist who can do exposure therapy with me because I, you know, you could even say, because I had a traumatizing experience at college and I want to return to college and I can't, you know, with where I'm at. And it's okay to take some time. Like you said, you had to withdraw from school. It's okay to do that and take your time until you can get back. Obviously, I know you probably don't want to take too much time off, but give yourself the time to work through this. And it's great that it didn't happen too long ago. Well, it says over a year ago. The sooner we process these things and the sooner we do exposure therapy, actually the better. I know that sounds shitty and nobody wants to do that kind of thing, but I'm just here to tell you that just like anything, like like physical health, the sooner we treat a cold, the, the less... Uh, extreme or severe it's going to get. And it's no different with your mental health. The sooner we work on our trauma and start talking about it and doing the exposures, the less likely it is to 
turn into PTSD or develop where we're extremely hypervigilant and our, you know, our world starts to get smaller, we can like keep that at bay. And so reach out because it does get better. Let's move on to question number eight. And this question says, hey, Katie, so I have BPD or borderline personality disorder. And I'm wondering, how does one not get so dependent on their FP? And FP stands for favorite person. I am very dependent on this person. Whenever they're in a bad mood or upset, it makes me in a bad mood or upset. That this was a great question. And the truth about it is if you're not already, as someone with borderline personality disorder, I cannot encourage you enough to either get in to see a therapist who does DBT or dialectical behavior therapy or even do some on your own. It's best with a therapist. I will put that out there. And usually there's a group component if you're doing like an actual DBT program. There's like your sessions every week and then the group sessions. But you can, you can go to my Amazon store. It's amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. And you can pick up, I have a green, it's like a green workbook. Um, it's called the Dialectical Behavior Therapy Workbook or something by McKay and someone else. I highly recommend that book. It's really easy to understand and read through, even though I think it's best to do with a therapist if you don't have someone or can't afford it. It's something that you can do on your own. And we're going to have to work our way through it. If you want to specify, like, because it goes in order of kind of, there's like main pillars of, of DBT. Like the first is always mindfulness, which is like just becoming more aware of ourselves and how our emotions are, what comes up for us, what's triggering. It's just becoming more aware. Um, and we usually start there and build up through um, just a couple others, like interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation. There's a lot of other skills in there. And so I really think when it comes to, to this, we're going to need, I mean, there's quite a, I think all of the DBT will be extremely beneficial to you. But when it comes to your favorite person and feeling really dependent, what's going on here is we don't really have any, because it's not even necessarily, I wouldn't call it interpersonal effectiveness, although there's boundaries that aren't being placed here. And this dependence we're going to have to prove to ourselves that it's okay to not see them all the time or to be separated from them for periods and be okay on our own, which is going to involve a lot of emotion regulation. And I really think that's where we're going to kind of live when it comes to the DBT work is in that emotion regulation. And it might behoove you to kind of journal out, you know, um, the benefits of being around them and the benefits of of taking time and being on your own. And it might even be helpful for you. I'm, I'm just spitballing here. It might be helpful for you to, to journal about what, you, what you're afraid of if you're not around them and why you find their mood so uh, contagious. Like, what do you think is happening there? And what is this connection with them? And, and just being curious, being a detective. It doesn't mean that we have to come up with this like extremely well put together thought process or answer. It's more about just diving into where this is coming from us and why, because my hypothesis or my guess is that this person in some ways, because they're our favorite person, we think they're just like the best person out there and they're amazing, is that for some reason being around them is like soothing to our system. And what I would encourage my patients to do is after doing that work and figuring out kind of like why it's so soothing and what it is about them that we find so calming, then I want to challenge you to come up with ways for you to do that yourself. And the reason this is important is because when we can do some of that on our own, then we become just slightly less dependent upon them. 
And it can start to then maybe even consider what it would look like to put a boundary in place there where they live their life, you live your life, and their mood is not your mood. Because what's happening right now is we're completely enmeshed. It's not actually like codependency. It's more enmeshment where their experience becomes your experience and there's no like emotional separation between you two. And we need to get you to a place where you feel okay starting to separate. And separation of emotions is actually extremely healthy. I know as someone with BPD, that's going to like trigger that abandonment fear. And we're going to think like, but I'm not, I need to be closer to them. I need to be closer. I'm here to tell you that you don't. And it's actually super unhealthy for our emotions to rub off on one another, which is why you're feeling uncomfortable with it. Because it's it's not a very healthy dynamic. But we can separate. And I might even encourage you to have a mantra or something that you tell yourself when they're upset. Be like, they can be upset and I can be okay. Or their mood doesn't have to affect my mood. And I know you might not believe these things right away, or it might not be something that really changes anything, but we at least want to kind of disrupt the thought process. Because my assumption is that somewhere in your brain, when they're upset, you're, you run through the things that maybe you've done, and then you think, oh, I should, maybe I should have done something differently. And oh, and if they're upset, then you know, if somebody did that to them, I can't even believe it. And we just like spin into the pit of despair because of what they've gone through or because of what they're experiencing, even though we haven't had that experience and we haven't gone through that. Um, And so sometimes it can help to just at least like stop that with a mantra or something like that. But yeah, I mean, that, that's really how we do it. it. It's, it's learning about ourselves and our experience, what is soothing, finding ways to give that to ourselves. This might even be through like building up some of your self-confidence, which there's a component of DBT, which we call building mastery. And that's when we like get really good at certain things and we work up our own, uh, it's just like our own sense of self. like Because part of uh, BPD, the one thing people don't talk enough about is the the difficulty in knowing who we are and feeling kind of like we're a phony or we just don't have a very secure sense of self. And so that's why we can become really enmeshed with people and really codependent in some cases where we feel like another person can tell us everything we need to know about ourselves. And so the goal with B, with you know DBT and even with BPD patients in general is instead of looking outward for soothing and for confirmation and for you know affirmations, we have to look inward and try to find a way to offer it to ourselves because otherwise we're always going to be vulnerable to other people's irregularities and people being people and they're not 100% reliable, right? It could be really triggering to our a fear of abandonment. And so we have to find ways to self-soothe and to offer those things ourselves. And I cannot encourage you enough to pick up that workbook and start working on it. And it, I know it's hard and it's super tedious, but it does get better. Now let's move on to question number nine. And this question, question says, wow, tongue twister for some reason. It says, Katie, could you talk more about the less common symptoms of OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder? I will redo things if it doesn't quote unquote feel right, super common, or have to touch the surface of everything I place anything, everything before I place anything down. Okay, so touching the surface before you put anything down. I find myself not being able to not do it, hence the you know, OCD. Sometimes I don't even know what the obsession would be because it's just an overwhelming feeling that something isn't right slash something bad could happen. So if I do the compulsion, I keep finding myself overanalyzing everything I do, thinking it could be a symptom of OCD or that it isn't bad enough. This leads me into rabbit holes of researching OCD and obsessing over the diagnostic criteria. Could this worrying be an obsession? And could research researching it be a compulsion? Yes, it could. 
I have so many different compulsions I do, and I find it taking up hours of my day worrying and doing things to try and stop the worry. I appreciate anything you have to say. Thank you. Of course. That last little bit that you said is like categorically OCD. It's like you're just checking off some criteria because if your compulsion, so let me explain for those of you who don't know what OCD really is. Now, OCD is under the umbrella of anxiety disorders because what happens is we have an obsession. And I think when people, I almost wish the word wasn't obsession because, I mean, I get why, why is that, but oftentimes people think of obsess, obsessing over something. They think you like, think about it, think about it, think about it, think about it. And that is true, but it's not like we obsess over just like, did I drink enough water? It's like we have a lot of different things that um, that can bother us. Like, let me let me explain. I feel like I'm not doing a very good job. So, we will obsess over doing something, and the most common is checking, which is when we people always think of OCD as like hand washing, and that could be part of it, or being really clean. That could be part of it. It's not that common, actually. The most common is checking, and checking is needing to check. Uh, the lights to make sure they're off before you leave the house like a certain number of times or checking that the stove is off or that I unplugged my curling iron, just checking things, right? And we obsess about that and there can get to be a certain number. So then we move into the compulsion, right? So we're, we're obsessing, obsessing, obsessing and we worry that if we don't do the compulsion, meaning go check or turn the things, check that they're turned off again a certain number of times until it feels right. I like the person brought up this feels right because I can get into that too. But the we have to do that, do the compulsion so that something bad doesn't happen. And our anxiety will build until we do the compulsion. And then it goes down for a short period of time until it starts to build again, which is why the way to get out of this OCD cycle of you know obsession and the anxiety building, do the compulsion feel better than obsess and do it again. Um, the only way out is actually to not do the compulsion and realize that our anxiety will build and then it will go down and that nothing bad will happen. It's hard and it takes work and it takes usually a therapist that specializes in OCD or anxiety disorders, um, but it does work and it, we can get out of it. Now, when it comes to things not feeling right, this applies to so many anxiety disorders and people just don't talk about it enough. And what the per- this person means is like, they can never describe to you how they know things are are right and good, but they just have to know it. They have to feel it to know. And this can, the reason I say anxiety disorders is that's how my trichotillomania patients talk about their hair pulling. Is it a, a hair? They'll be feeling on hairs in their head or eyebrows or eyelashes or arm hairs, whatever. And a hair won't feel right. Something just doesn't feel right. And so they have to pull it out. And it's that urge and it will happen over and over again until the point where they, you know, maybe don't have much hair left or have complete patches of baldness, whether it's their, they have no eyelashes, eyebrows, or, or hair. It's usually on your head. That's the most common. I don't know why that is, but that just happens to be the most common. But people, some people pluck their arm hairs or leg hairs or armpit hairs or whatever as well. But the most common is like eyebrows, eyelashes, and hair on your head. And so that feeling just right it's going to be different to everyone. And I find that most people can't explain what it means. They just know it when, when they feel it. And that is part of that anxiety building. And why we feel the urge to do the compulsion so many times is because it hasn't quite felt right yet. And there's nothing that anybody else can do to assist us. We just have to know that it feels just right. And that, 
that's just anxiety driven. It's just one of those things where our anxieties got, we have this uncontrollable worry that things just aren't just right. We have to do them again until they feel just right. It's just crazy making and it can be really overwhelming. And part of the diagnostic criteria is that this takes more than an hour of your day. It kind of impairs your functioning and that's what's happening to you. It says it takes up hours of your day worrying and doing things to stop the worry, hence the anxiety building. Because if you guys don't know, generalized anxiety disorder is kind of loosely defined as someone who has uncontrollable worry. So that, I mean, the less common symptoms, there's also pure OCD. People don't talk about that a lot. I know that I have off and on, but this is when we have like mental compulsions, meaning like I believe I had an uh, OCD type behavior for probably two or three years of my life. And it was when I was younger, I was probably like 12 to 14 or maybe even younger than that. But it it started with spelling. Um, I wanted, I, I'd done a spelling bee in school and I, I made it to like the semifinals and then I lost out. And the like perfectionist in me was like, absolutely not. And so I started in my head before I would say words, I started spelling them out. I know, insanity. But it got to the point where if I felt like I didn't spell them out, then like my anxiety would build and something bad would happen. Like I would misspeak, I would say something wrong and people would think I was stupid. That was like my biggest worry. And so I would do it over and over. Now that's pure OCD because it was all in my head. Nobody knew that I was doing it. It was all internal. And that's one of the symptoms that people don't talk about enough because it doesn't necessarily uh, show itself in physical things. Like I'm not going around checking. I'm not feeling things. You know, there's not a, a... a bodily action I'm doing. It's a mental action. And so that's something that's less common. And also the things feeling right. I think enough people, like people don't talk about that enough and what that really means. And as someone who doesn't experience that personally, it's hard for me to describe because again, it's one of those things that like people just know and they'll say it just felt right or it just didn't feel right. And so I had to do it again. And that can take a, a lot of time. I had a patient, this is years ago at the eating disorder treatment center where she would have to, I don't know if it was like all of her laundry or if it was just like her sheets. Anyway, there was something about things. They had to be folded in just this right way and she had to feel them. So they'd be like folded and she had to rub the top. And if it felt right, she could leave it. But if not, she had to do it again. And she would do this over and over, over and over. And of course, when she, we took away her eating disorder behaviors because she was in treatment, this anxiety and this urge went through the roof. And it started to like spread into other things. And we had to work we, um, to treat that as well. But Anyway, those are really my thoughts about it. I mean, you definitely have OCD. I would reach out and speak up and get help from a professional who knows how to treat OCD. The, Like I said, the main way out is to not do the compulsions and to get support and ways to soothe as you push against that anxiety. Because believe me when I tell you, it will go down. It just feels really uncomfortable in the meantime, but then it does get better. Um, yeah. Oh, and then... You don't even know what the obsession would be. I think the obsession is that, th- that things have to feel right before you can set things down or do things. That That's the obsession. And if you don't do it just right, then something bad will happen, right? Then you have that build of anxiety that something bad will happen and then we do the compulsion. So that would probably be the obsession in that case. But that, I'm just hypothesizing. You know you best. So if that doesn't ring true for you, you know, uh, trust your gut on that one. Okay, I think I answered everything with that. Let's move on to the final question, question number 10. This question says, hello, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, I was just wondering about thoughts of self-harm. I got really focused on an object. I wanted to buy it. I didn't hurt myself, but I really wanted to. Now I feel shitty, like I fell and cannot get back up. 
How can I feel better when situations like this keep happening to me? I haven't hurt myself since February. I need to be happy because of this. Thank you so much. Lots of love. I love this question. There was a comment on this. It was a beautiful comment as well. And so thank you to everyone who replies to people and leaves little insights that you've gained through your time because your experience is just as valuable as my expertise. And together, you know, we, we make the dream team. <laughs> so anyways, just to piggyback on that comment, because it was exactly where my brain was going, is when I read this question, what stood out to me was I need to be happy because of this, because you haven't hurt yourself since February. And as a therapist, my first question would be like, why do you need to be happy about this? I'd really want to know. I'd leave space. It'd be one of those awkward therapy moments where you're like, your therapist just waits, waits for you to answer. Because it's, it's a hard question, but it's one that we really need to think about. Why, are, why do we feel that we should, again, we're shooting on ourselves. Why do we think we should be happy for not self-injuring? Is it because that behavior is wrong? We know it doesn't help us, right? We can come up with this list. But that, that doesn't mean that we need to be happy. That just means that those are reasons why we don't do it anymore. But the act of not, meaning if I usually overexercise or use eating disorder behavior or self-injure or let myself roll into the pit of depression and despair, if that's how I usually cope, when I don't do it, it's going to feel pretty fucking terrible. And I know you're like, Katie, how can you say that? You're a therapist. You tell people to not do these things. That doesn't mean it's not better for you. But there's going to be this chunk of time where it doesn't feel good because we've just removed the one thing that made us feel better. Sure, it's not helpful in the long term. Sure, it's not something that's healthy for us. And we know it doesn't lead us anywhere good. And the urge is just going to come back. And we're going to feel bad about doing it. But then we feel bad not doing it. And ah, right? Mind fuckery. But when we take that thing away, then we have no way to cope, right? We're often then just like scrambling to try to find other coping skills. And it sucks, but nothing is going to fully replace the urge to self-injure. I always tell my patients, I'm like, I want you to have five positive coping skills that you can do so that you don't use that self-injury one. And no, you're not going to feel like a million bucks or it's not going to feel the same as the self-injury, but it will put it off so long that the urge will dissipate and we won't feel the need to do it anymore. And slowly but surely, we'll find our way out. And there will come a time, I'm here to tell you that there will come a time when not doing it won't even be a thing that's happening because the urge will be gone. And sure, things get really, really stressful. And oh, those thoughts will bubble up again. And we're like, I remember you, you sons of bitches, right? And we can ignore them because we have all these other ways to manage and to cope and to care for ourselves. But it doesn't mean that we're going to be happy about it. It might be like, I used to hate that I did that thing, but sometimes I kind of miss it. And that's okay too. I know. I know that might sound shocking, and you might think that you know, you're supposed to feel happy about your progress, but we have to also understand that that thing that you used to do, the self-injury or the eating disorder or whatever it might be, that old unhealthy coping skill helped you get through something really shitty. And we can be really grateful for that, and it's really hard to replace. And so my goal with my patients isn't actually to replace it per se, it's to get you to a point where you're able to sustain the anxiety or the urge until it goes away and be okay with that. Survive it. Be okay. Not give in, not, you know, wallow and shit talk ourselves, but let it go and be like, huh, okay, I, I got through that one, 
we don't have to feel happy about it. We just have to know that we're moving in the right direction toward a, a better, healthier us. Does that make sense? And I maybe this is like another video or maybe it's a, a TikTok I do, but I feel like we need to talk about this a little bit more because there's always this expectation that we should feel, you know, quote unquote, happy about recovery. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we instead feel kind of lost for a little bit of time until we reclaim and rediscover who we are without that thing. You know, I talked about earlier about our identity being wrapped up in our mental illness. If we take that thing away, we can feel confused and sad and and maybe not know who we are for a period of time. And I feel like we need to talk more about that period of time. It does get better and we will feel happier, healthier, but that doesn't mean that it has to directly relate to us not doing the thing. Like, oh, I got through that. Yay, I'm so happy, so proud of myself. Some people feel that way, but I find the majority do not. And it, we just know that we don't want to do that anymore. It's like, um, I don't know, I guess you could even compare it to uh, like trying to stop biting my nails. Like when I was a kid, I bit my nails and I hated it and I would try to stop. And some days when I would go without doing it, I would think about it and want to do it all the time. And then I'd be kind of like proud of myself for not doing it, but I wasn't like happy about it because it was, it was anxiety driven. So I definitely still felt like anxious and I was like, oh, I had no, that's when I started coloring a lot. And so there was no like joy out of the fact that I didn't do it. I was just glad that it didn't happen. And you might not even go that far. It might not even be glad, but I hope that you can at least, and maybe this is where we focus our energy, is you could at least be proud of yourself for making positive change in your life and moving towards a better and healthier you. That doesn't have anything to do with happiness. That's just us knowing that if we keep down the road that we're on, it doesn't lead us to anywhere we want to be. So why are we still on this road? We're, we're Every time that urge comes, we're deciding to take a different path, right? I don't want that road. It's not helpful. But that doesn't mean that like the next path is just like this joyful like lollipops and unicorns and fucking kitty cats or something. It just means it's just healthier for us, right? It's like, I don't know. If we talk about diet culture, it's like if I'm craving um, – cake, but I feel like, oh, it's going to make my stomach hurt. Maybe I shouldn't have that. And I'm like, oh, I should probably eat more vegetables and I have broccoli. I'm not going to be happy about it, but I'll be like, that was probably a healthier decision for me right now since I had cake for lunch, right? Like you don't have to be happy about it. You just know it's a better decision. I hope that makes sense. And maybe I'll do a TikTok about this or a YouTube short or something because I feel like it needs to be talked about more. But anyways, I love you all. Thank you so much for all of your questions. I hope you're having a wonderful start to your new year. Um, take care of yourselves this week and weekend, and I'll see you next time. Bye. And not necessarily borderline personality disorder. It's more about um, having that attachment and, oh God, there's a spider on the table. I thought I saw something moving. Sean? There's a spider on the table.